From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, August 6th. In the last 18 months, it feels like we have all been thinking more about the labor that is caregiving. It's been over a year of us moving through life like this. It It's just not sustainable for me to do this every single day in the way that I have been. Earlier this week on the podcast, we talked about the huge infrastructure bill that finally has this bipartisan support and does seem to be moving through the Senate. But what I want to talk about today is human infrastructure. It's essential to that foundation as well. And yes, that bill is enormous, but it is also essentially half of the $2.2 trillion infrastructure plan that Biden had proposed earlier this spring. To truly win the 21st century and once again lead the world, to truly build an economy from the bottom up and the middle out, to truly deal everybody in this time, we need to invest in our people. We need to invest in our people. And a lot of what ended up getting left out of the bill is what's being called human infrastructure. Things like providing money for quality childcare, elderly care, and in-home care. And today, we're going to dive into one part of what isn't being addressed with this deal. People who care for partners who have disabilities. I've been working on a Sunday business story here for almost a year now about young women who are caretakers to their paralyzed partners and how in many states they aren't able to get paid. Amber Ferguson is a video editor for The Post. In reporting the story, she learned that in most states, if you're giving care to a partner with a disability, you cannot be compensated if you're married. And those people who aren't getting compensated for their labor are usually women. 80% of spinal cord injuries happen to men for a few different reasons. Usually the top causes are vehicle accidents and motorcycle accidents, injuries from contact sports such as football, So because it primarily does happen to men, the majority of caretakers are women taking care of men. I interviewed over a dozen women for the story, and I really focused on a couple, Jane Morgan and Connor Slevin. She just turned 30, and he's 31, and he got paralyzed right before the pandemic in January 2020. They were in Mexico for a wedding, a friend's wedding. We had finally made it to the beach town that they were getting married in, and uh, we were just swimming in the ocean. It was just the middle of the day, and a big wave came, and I dove under it, and Connor allowed it to take him towards the shore a little bit, and it tumbled him down, pushed him underwater, and um, he says that he felt and could hear his neck break and she found him face down, turned him over, and brought him to shore. And ever since that day, she became his sole caregiver. Now they do the same thing every day. She wakes up, she makes him breakfast, she helps him with his bowel routine and his catheter. All right, ready to pee? Okay. She gets him dressed. She helps him in the shower. Yes, what shirt do you want? Um, I don't know. You want a t-shirt? T-shirt, please. 
She takes care of her dog, Mo. She does all the laundry, all the cooking. Yeah, okay. Something about unloading the dishwasher makes me really mad. Really? Yeah, because, like, I just want this stuff in here, you know? I guess, I mean, I... So I just try to do it as fast as possible, that's all I'm trying to say. <laughs> she transfers him up to 10 times a day, so she's lifting him. He's about 170 pounds, and she lifts him into his chair, into the bed, onto the floor. <laughs> One, two... Three. Good. Okay. Her day-to-day -day life is focused on him and his recovery. That sounds like an enormous amount of work that she is responsible for. What did she say to you when you were there about what it's like to be a primary caregiver like this? Something that stood out to me is that she's so focused on him, she barely focuses on herself. She doesn't have a day off. Her 30th birthday was coming up and they're going to take their first trip. And she was so stressed out because he has so many medical needs. Something that has been difficult this year since Connor was injured is just that the necessity to care for his mental state and psychological state and emotional state. And then additionally, my own mental and psychological and emotional state is so taxing that we often don't get to the things in our relationship that we would be talking about. And that has taken, you know, that takes a strain on your relationship for sure. I love Connor very much and I know he loves me and it's, it's just really difficult. And she herself has been having problems because of transferring so much and lifting him that she's now doing acupuncture herself at the same place he does physical therapy because it's taking such a toll on her body. So then how does their experience play into this issue that you've been looking at in terms of how caregivers like her are compensated? So in many ways, she's lucky to be in Oregon because she is able to get paid as his girlfriend. And if they get married, she'll still be able to get paid. She will still continue to get paid for his medical needs and transportation, but for instrumental activities for daily living, such as cooking, meal prep, shopping, anything to do with the household, her hours will be reduced. We should be grateful to be living in Oregon because they are able to pay me. That being said, the state is only able to pay me for 40 hours a week of Connor's care, but it is just at minimum wage. And also, more importantly, I think it doesn't account for the care that Connor needs. It's just their limitation for this program. Oregon is one of eight states where spouses are allowed to get paid through Medicaid. And the program I was talking about is a Medicaid program. And there's eight other states that have private insurance or private programs, but they have a lot of limitations. And some of them have wait lists. And the limitations could be you have to go through all of this training, and then you're still going to get paid less than what a stranger who is a non-family member caregiver. So what I'm seeing is basically women are kind of expected to do unpaid labor. When I was looking at the list of all of these states, it will say family members can get paid except spouses. That, that's very surprising to me that all of a sudden getting married makes your labor less valuable. When I spoke to the Oregon Department of Health and Human Services, they told me that it's because she's in the household that she is also benefiting from cooking and all of that. But the issue is 
Connor cannot cook for himself. And if a stranger did it, they would be getting paid more. And Jane is very upset about this. I can't believe that on their website, they actually have the audacity to say that because it's expected of a spouse to care for their husband or wife, that the hours that they'll be paid for the care that they are providing is going to be automatically less than that person would receive from somebody else. That just seems totally ridiculous to me. And says, you know, this is actually sexist and that you're assuming that spouses do certain duties, usually women. And she's saying, no, just because I'm a spouse doesn't mean I have to do any of these things. What she's paid for her caregiving duties, is that their primary income? Yes, but he also gets social security disability. So he gets about $1,900 a month. But they pay for a lot of things out of pocket. The grips for his wheelchair, they pay for gloves, which she told me was like $200 wipes. Because they're not, you know, just like the wipes that you would get from Target or CVS. It's like specialty things. They might pay for certain catheters, but they're very standard. But the better ones you have to pay for out of pocket. And... Social security is also really interesting because he has to report it if they get married and his benefits could also be reduced. But they're already not making a lot of money as a couple compared to what they were making before. How has the pandemic changed the situation for them and for other couples? Why I focused on spinal cord injuries in particular and not other ones is because a spinal cord injury is one of the most expensive injuries someone can have in their lifetime. And it's chronic and their care is ongoing. So particularly quadriplegia, they have reduced lung capacity and they have to do an assisted cough, which kind of looks like a Heimlich maneuver. So COVID, which is a respiratory illness, could potentially have been even more fatal for someone with a spinal cord injury, which meant that women who were working outside the home had to stay home because they couldn't afford to have an outside caregiver or nurse come in. And so this left them even more isolated because they had to be extremely more careful before vaccines were available. It didn't even cross our minds to think about a second person helping. Now it's been over a year of us moving through life like this. It's just not sustainable for me to do this every single day in the way that I have been. Connor spent a month in California in a rehab and he was supposed to stay there longer, but because of the pandemic, they basically forced him to leave. And afterwards, he only had Zoom appointments with his doctors. So Jane took on all of the outpatient physical therapy. And now he is able to go to a rehabilitation center but for 50 minutes, that's $100 an hour, and insurance doesn't pay for that. So he applies for grants all the time to try to pay for it. He was a really popular bartender in Portland. After his accident, they raised $150,000, and Jane told me that was gone in eight weeks for him being in the hospital and to pay for his spinal surgery. And she put out an ad recently to hire a caregiver so Jane could go back to work at least part-time, and she said no one has responded yet. And it's really because most nurses who are qualified for these duties are in the hospital because that's where you're going to make the most money as a nurse. It's not home care. So now with the new Delta variant, Jane really feels even more confined because she thought, you know, things are getting a little better. 
I can probably leave the home and work a little bit more, but now she doesn't think that's possible with the new variant. That is so much pressure. So what are couples who are in these kinds of situations trying to do to potentially change how they are compensated? In the spring, President Biden introduced his original $2.3 trillion infrastructure plan. And the plan called for $400 billion for expanding access to quality and affordable home health care and caregiving. It's about creating jobs with better pay and career pathways for caregivers and showing them that dignity and respect that they deserve. But I know it's hard. And this was seen as a win for so many people. They thought, finally, we're going to get the help we need. But Republicans considered the part of his plan, human infrastructure, and they dropped it. And now there's a push from Democrats to have a separate spending bill that would include money for caregiving. It's unclear if that will pass, how much money will be delegated, and how it will be distributed to states and to caregivers. Some women are completely fed up and they think that nothing will change. Other women have seriously considered getting a divorce on paper where they are legally divorced, but they're still in a relationship. And other women have gone to courts and they've appealed and have been turned down. The law is the law. I'm curious about the argument against compensating women in these situations for their caregiving roles. I mean, is there something to be said for this idea that once you are married, you do a lot of things for the people in your household, not all of them are paid things, and that that is part of being part of a family? So one of the reasons why these laws in many say are written this way is to prevent fraud and abuse. And that if you're giving family members in general money, that they could maybe not be caregiving and they could be pocketing that money. I interviewed a few experts and they told me what should happen is that Medicaid should hire agencies to train family members to be paid caregivers. And the agencies would train them to become certified aides where They would have the certification where they would be qualified to give care, but also give care outside of the home in case they ever wanted to get another job. And this way, it would prevent fraud, but also give them more skills. A lot of these women talk about that they're told by their social workers, these are wifely duties. And I kept hearing that thread throughout this piece. And they were saying, this is not a wifely duty. It's not a wifely duty to spend four hours a night getting my husband to bed and spending 90 minutes with him on the toilet to help him with his bowel program. It is not a spousely duty to change his catheter every three to four hours. It is not a wifely duty to tie his shoes. This work is extremely grueling, and it's taxing emotionally and physically, and honestly, people just have no idea. Amber Ferguson is a video editor for The Post. The story was produced by Sabby Robinson. 
There is a really compelling version of the same story online, with videos and photos of Jane and Connor going through their daily routines, which for me really hit home how hard everyday things are for them. We'll include a link to that story in our show notes and at postreports.com. We'll be right back. Earlier this week, we answered some of your questions about the current COVID surge and what it means for you, your plans, and your family. A lot of the questions that we got were about kids and about schools and about how to keep your kids safe even if they are too young to get vaccinated. If you have questions about kids and the Delta variant, send us a voice memo at postreports at washpost.com. Don't forget to include your name and where you live. We look forward to hearing those questions. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and Jordan Marie Smith. Ariel Plotnik and Rennie Svernovsky are associate producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. Our intern is Corey Suzuki. The post director of audio is Renita Jablonski. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 